Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Terry Swack from Sustainable Minds. So, Terry, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. So, looking at your background, you started in design. Walk me through that. I started my career as a graphic designer. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree from the Philadelphia College of Art in graphic design. And my mother picked graphic design for me. As a small child, I was a voracious reader and I loved drawing and painting. And Mm -hmm. so she worked at Case Western Reserve University and had to work with their publications department to put out literature about the programs she was running. And she made friends with the graphic designer there. And she said, you know, I think what you do is something my daughter would like to do. So my junior year of high school, she sent me down to go meet this woman. And I walked into her office and there was type hanging on the wall and colored paper. And all of a sudden I knew I was home. And so I studied graphic design for five years and that's how I started my career. Yeah. So at what point did you make the shift from design user experience to include sustainability or innovation? How did that all happen? All right. Well, we only have an hour for this. So <laughs> you're asking about a pretty long period of time, but I'll try and condense it. So sure. the progression was going from being a graphic designer to then starting my own graphic design firm in the 80s before there were computers. And so uh, computation started to really change the face of of design and the display of information and access to tools. So the internet happened in 92, 93, and I was already looking at what was happening to the design industry and what could I do for my business. So I had a company then, and, and I was fortunate to see the World Wide Web very early and thought, geez, you know, that's going to need a lot of design thinking to make that domain useful to disseminate information. And so I said, well, if I start designing for the World Wide Web, I can just make it up as I go along because there were no designers thinking about design for the web. So I'll just make it up as I go along and nobody can tell me if I'm doing it right or wrong because I'll just be doing it. So By 1994, I changed my company to an internet strategy and product development company. And that's when we started really thinking about user experience and bringing the discipline of experience design, which was really not even a word anybody used, but breaking down the elements of user experience and creating a whole array of service offerings for companies building websites. And we coined the term, well, we actually developed a service offering called the user experience audit, where it led all of our services to evaluate the user's experience of an existing website or web-based tools to understand how that site was delivering to the intentions of the user. Why were they coming to the site? Were they getting their needs met? And thereby 
How were they meeting then the business objectives the company had for that user? And so we developed a whole strategy and development methodology. And I built that company to the end of the 90s and I sold it to a company called Razorfish that was doing a, a whole roll up of, of companies globally. And I actually became the first global head of customer experience for any of those large digital companies to kind of roll that user experience thinking out globally. But, you know, a few years went by and I really felt like it was time to take what I knew how to do and apply it to things that mattered. And so I had met a guy who was starting a a solar panel company in 2004. And I got really engaged with thinking about clean energy and what the future would be like if we had a clean energy future. And so I decided that I needed to be working on clean energy in some way, shape, or form. And I had to figure out how me as a user experience designer who knew how to design and build useful business systems on the internet, how could I bring that to the clean energy space? And then one thing led to another. I fell in with a group at MIT. We started a business plan competition for clean tech companies. That competition is now the Clean Tech Open. Sustainable Minds is a national in-kind sponsor. We give any of the teams access to our software. But pretty quickly, I realized that there weren't a lot of great green products in the marketplace. Well, why was that? That's because green doesn't mean anything. It's code for really environmental performance or environmental impact. And I thought that I could create a very impactful company if we could deliver knowledge and tools on the internet, or now we could say in the cloud, same thing. (laughs) We could deliver knowledge and tools to product manufacturers who might not then have cared about bringing higher performing, more innovative or less impactful products to the market, but we're starting to. That's how I started Sustainable Minds. origin of the name is you have to get people to think differently before you can get them to act differently. So this integration of knowledge and tools is critical because people don't really have time to go learn on their own and then do. It it needs to happen at the same time. And that's really been the impetus behind all the tools and services that we deliver. Yeah. So early days, because you're talking about 2000. Four, mm-hmm. And I think you started this current venture 2007. Right. So how were you approaching changing minds? There's a lot of companies that are trying to break new ground and change people's minds and, and right. get things moving. How do you approach that? Well, I actually did another company in that time window. I just skipped over that. But I like to say every, every entrepreneur worth his or her salt has been, has raised money for a company and then been fired by the VCs. So that's what happened in that window. But it was a learning curve because that company was about building a marketplace for cleaner and greener products across all categories. That's how I discovered there weren't a lot of great green products in the marketplace. And the VCs, just like typical VCs, had dollar signs bigger than their eyes. And they wanted it to become the Martha Stewart of green. And they wanted to create a content company, which wasn't the business plan they funded at all. And so I pushed back. So they fired me. But it was not before learning that there weren't a lot of great green products in the marketplace. Well, why? 
because green didn't mean anything and manufacturer didn't know what to do. So really, it was kind of like an incubator almost for gathering enough information about what it was going to take to change people's minds. And what I learned also in that phase was that the first minds that needed to be changed were the minds of the engineering software industry producers. So CAD, PLM, and the first thing that had to be changed about PLM, which is product lifecycle management, which is a category of of enterprise software, product lifecycle always was defined as cradle to gate. So traditionally, once a manufacturer made a product and it left their shipping dock, all done, not my responsibility anymore, all that has changed, right? So by redefining the definition for the industry, what product lifecycle means is the whole product lifecycle from raw material acquisition to component manufacturer, product manufacturer, use phase, end of life, and you've got transportation and distribution between each of those stages. So I got very involved in the engineering software industry. I spoke at conferences. I met all of the, I had the opportunity, got some great connections early on who were very supportive of this kind of change being brought into the industry. So I was able to meet many of the leaders in the engineering software industry. And and in fact, Sustainable Minds was funded early on by Carl Bass, the CEO of Autodesk. And Autodesk was our largest investor uh, because they already saw that, yes, they did need to step up and make smarter tools for the people who were actually designing every building, product, bridge, infrastructure to be able to integrate decisions about life cycle impact. Yeah. I'm going to pause because (laughs) I'm just going on and on and I'll let you ask a question. (laughs) Well, no, it's good. Yeah. So not everyone would go into a situation and essentially create a new category. Right. I mean, what were the ups and downs? Because I mean, typical marketing thinking goes, hey, where's the trend? Where's the thing? But you were really early. You really yeah. had to to lay the foundation for all this stuff. Like what sort of adversity did you have to overcome to get through to where we are today? Well, the first line of adversity was getting people to think that this was important. <laughs> so I skipped a company that I did after Razorfish and before Cleantech. I helped a friend get a network security software company off the ground from 2002 to 2004. And it was a venture-backed company. And that's kind of where I learned how do you actually start a venture-backed company. But what I learned from that was that we were building network security software tools for small and mid-sized business, which had no software. Because all of the network security companies at that time were like Cisco, just big firewall companies. And so there are, our salespeople would be calling on small and mid-sized businesses and people said, what's network security? We don't need that. We've never been hacked. So we finally had to tell our sales reps, look, if people don't think they have that problem, get off the phone, like just leave because you can't, you can't sell people a solution to a problem they don't think they have. So, you know, fast forward a decade. Network security, ah, you know, so, so same thing. I was early saying, look, we've got to, look, we live on a planet with finite assets. 
And the rate at which consumption and population is growing, and particularly how emerging economies want to be just like first world economies, we already have exceeded the carrying capacity of the planet by five times. On this trajectory, we need five planets to support the carrying capacity of the growth and the consumption that we're demonstrating now. That was actually my very first slide of my pitch deck was like, let's frame the problem, how big it actually is. And so the way to, okay, now does everybody agree that's a problem? Okay, now let's move forward. Here's what needs to happen to address that problem is we have to slow consumption. We have to design differently. We have to think about the whole life cycle and we have to have strategies in design and manufacturing for end of life and when what happens next and not just always new, 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 throw away, throw away, throw away. There, there is no such place as a way. That's another thing you have to explain to people. No, a landfill isn't a way. It's a landfill. It's next door to those people's houses. But you're right. It was very difficult to define a new category. We were the first sustainability software solution. So being a startup, defining a new category is really not a good go-to-market strategy. (laughs) Unless you have many, many millions of dollars and key go-to-market partners. But I just saw that it was a problem that needed to really get work done in a meaningful way. And underlying all of this, and to bring it back to the start of the conversation is that in order for people to adopt new technology or even new ways of thinking, you have to make it simple. You have to make it understandable and you have to make it simple. And that's what designers do. Designers make things understandable and simple through visualization, through good information design, and then through the evolution of the web that extended in from information design, which is just the structuring of information, which was traditionally on a page, it turned into information architecture. How do you actually navigate through information? How do you even structure that information and then visually display it so that hierarchies and paths and categories become clear and interaction design? All of those things are design. And so it's taken an extraordinary amount of design thinking to not only conceive the company, but to build the tools that we build. Because what we're doing is we're taking very technical methods, so life cycle assessment, and making those methods of measuring and modeling simple and understandable to non-life cycle assessment experts. And those, those people are chemical engineers for the most part. So these are tools for product managers, designers to be able to integrate the ability to measure and model the life cycle impacts of products in design. And so what we built was really a design tool, but kind of sat in the engineering software industry. Yeah. So you mentioned simplify it and communicate it, and you've done lots of different ventures. Now, with the ventures you've done, how have you applied that from growing out a organization? How have you, I mean, have you figured out how to simplify the process on getting a company going and sort of through the adoption phases? Well, that, that's actually what I know how to do. Yeah. What any entrepreneur needs help with is 
getting it to the next level is with scale. And I'm really excited about that opportunity now for Sustainable Minds because unlike 2007, here we are, it finally took until 2021, people care. (laughs) They understand, you know, the problems are real. And there's a whole new generation of people, particularly who deeply care and are have to care out of their own self-interest. And it will be, unfortunately, the millennial generation where this problem is squarely landing on their shoulders. And so I feel really great about the breadth of students, colleges and universities who have adopted our software and their curriculum across business schools, every kind of engineering, chemical, civil, mechanical, and industrial design programs, undergraduate, graduate. Our software has been used in probably over 500 colleges and universities in over 90 countries. So we've touched a lot of minds early on when it needs to happen so that people understand that life cycle thinking, so eco-design strategies, designing differently and measuring life cycle assessment is just part of product development and manufacturing. Not something separate, not something new, not something extra, but it's just core to that process. And so there's a whole next generation of people making products who now are understanding that and are integrating that into their, into their thinking. Okay. And then you mentioned, you know, talking to, working with chemists and people, th- that discipline, what are the common objections or things that you have to talk through and explain? for adoption? Well, it depends on on who you're talking to. So we thought industrial designers would be our early adopters. So industrial designers have consulting firms and the business model for consulting firms is they sell hours. So when they put together a proposal for a project, they have a process for, like any company has a process for their deliverables. So adding environmental performance as a criteria to evaluate the design and then doing the work to measure and factor that into the result isn't necessarily something that their clients were asking for. And so it was this kind of push-pull between getting the industrial design community to step up and simply make that part of the way they design, which is how it should be, right? Because it's, it starts with designers making products that either use and consume materials wisely and have a end of life scenario or they don't. So the pushback on adoption, particularly early on, and actually still today is that, well, unless our clients asking for that, we can't do that because we won't get paid for it. And so the, my response is, Well, if you develop a new capability that your competitors don't have, that's something that will give you an edge in the marketplace. And even if you don't decide to use that as a marketing tool to communicate that you can design more sustainable products, why not do it anyway? And then just show the client, educate the client about the solution that you're providing and how it's a better solution than if you had not done that work. 
So, you know, there's the business model thing. Well, if they're not paying us to do it, we can't do it. So that's that category. For manufacturers, there's so many people involved in making decisions about products. It really does start with education. And so we designed our tool to be a collaborative and easy to use tool because product managers, designers, engineers, purchasing people, and more marketing people are are all involved in making decisions about products. So getting everybody on the same page to understand what is life cycle thinking. So thinking about the whole product life cycle, what kinds of strategies can be brought to bear, and then how to set environmental performance metrics by benchmarking existing products, setting goals for performance improvements, understanding what's causing those impacts, applying strategies to mitigate those impacts or completely drive a a next generation innovative solution. So it it takes a lot of people to think differently and and then make decisions and work differently. So it's it's time. But like I said, it's a good 15 years later. And finally manufacturers understand and then particularly now the industry we're largely focused on is the building and construction industry. There isn't I'm just going to say there's very few building product manufacturers in North America who have not been made aware of the growth in green building and the demand for products with better environmental performance that does require life cycle assessment to evaluate and then ultimately disclose those impacts. So now the pushback is cost and time. You know, it's expensive for them to do those types of disclosures. The tool that we built when we launched the company is a design tool. It's not a reporting tool. And so to report according to the ISO standards, a full LCA that's third-party verified and then published in what's called a type three environmental declaration, which is also known as a environmental product declaration or an EPD. It's kind of a lengthy, expensive process. But the industry, and meaning the, those architects, engineers, contractors, and owners who are committed to high-performance building are requiring manufacturers to have EPDs and now material ingredient disclosures, or their products won't get specified for projects. Yeah, for sure. You talked about disclosures, and I think we talked about this before. How do you approach information that's proprietary or in process for intellectual property? Well, it depends on the type of disclosure. So we've already been talking about environmental performance and and that's what life cycle assessment looks at. Life cycle assessment looks at the environmental impacts. We've switched it around to talk about performance. That was something we did very early in bringing our first product to market because people can't really get excited about impacts, but they can get excited about performance. And setting goals for performance improvement was a really key strategy to get people to think about environmental performance as just another criteria in product development. So environmental performance is one type of transparency disclosure now being called in the building construction industry. The other type of disclosure, the transparency disclosure, is disclosing the material ingredients used to make that product. And so together, those two kinds of disclosures give a very holistic 
view of, of the product. And there are ways to keep information proprietary in, in both types of disclosures. And typically it's because a third party is conducting the analysis, third party meaning you've got the product manufacturer and then you've got the supply chain. And then the third party in between is doing the data collection from the suppliers in the supply chain for the purposes of modeling the impacts for the end manufacturer. And the actual data does not need to be disclosed. It's the impacts that the material and the inputs contribute to that, that get modeled and disclosed. Yeah, for sure. Now, what do you see with all the stuff that you're doing going forward? You mentioned that in the past or just, just in our conversation, but how, how do you think things are going to go? What sort of trends are you watching for going forward? Well, I think top of mind for pretty much everyone in the industry now is reducing embodied carbon and just trying to get our arms around any new when I say carbon, that's code for all global warming gases. So actually carbon dioxide is less impactful than some of the other ones, like methane, for example. But when we're talking about embodied carbon, we are talking about all global warming gases that get created or emitted during the manufacture of a product. And so what's really been trending in the design and construction industry is understanding how reducing the embodied carbon impacts of products is a much more powerful mitigation strategy than trying to manage carbon emissions from building operations. Because there's, there's always things that can be done to make a building more energy efficient. Insulation, solar panels, buying renewable energy, increasing efficient windows. There's many things that, that can be done. Turning lights off, keep lowering thermostats. But if you go back to the source of the manufacturing, if you never emit <laughs> the emissions in the first place, then they don't need to be mitigated. So people are really, really focusing on new kinds of materials, hear about biogenic carbon, that's something you actually do know about, and looking at natural materials, new kinds of materials, recycled materials, so second, third lives using more renewable or clean energy sources in, in manufacturing. And so all of this is trending now of, of how to actually change the way products and materials get created from the manufacturers and then how they actually get built into buildings. So there's a lot of new thinking, a lot of new design that needs to be codified and really made part of regular professional practice, but there's no shortage of people who are working on that problem in a vigorous way. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you wanted to cover? Well, I should mention the transparency catalog because, and for any of you who listen to this podcast, you go to transparencycatalog.com, you will find the only platform containing every single building product manufacturer in the world who makes products or materials for the North American market, who has invested in product transparency, one or both of the transparency disclosures that I've described. It's free to use and there's no login. I want to repeat that. It is 
free to use. Anybody can use it. You don't have to set up an account. We believe privacy and transparency go hand in hand. So we don't collect personal information. We want everybody to be able to find those manufacturers who are actually making higher performing products and providing the documentation to disclose that so that you can see what, what they're doing and also use their products to meet green building rating system requirements. But even better yet, for those of you who are listening, who are involved in material specification, the transparency catalog is designed as a specification tool. So it's organized by master format. So this is the information designer in me. When we created the transparency catalog in 2016, we thought long and hard about what are the organizational aspects of how are we going to organize this information? And then the user experience strategy is, okay, who are the users? Okay, the users are people who work in architecture, engineering, construction. Well, how do they select products and materials for buildings? They have to select products to get put into the specification organized by master format, which is, I like to say, the Dewey Decimal System for the building construction industry. So the transparency catalog is organized by master format, the CSI, Construction Specification Institute, master format, numbering system. We have so many manufacturers now. It's every manufacturer and all making products for North America. There's now over 1,600 manufacturers. We have products and manufacturers in now 27 of the most commonly used master format divisions and now in just about 1,000 sections. It's a massive catalog and it's free to use, no login. And in one click, people looking for products in a particular master format section for a specific specification or application can find every single manufacturer making products for that application in a single click. That's an information design problem that we've elegantly solved. So I'm still a designer. We design all day long. I still think of Sustainable Minds as a design company. We sell tools to designers, so we have to think like designers. And design makes complex things clear, simpler, easier to understand. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your story and knowledge, Terry. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. I also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes, entrepreneurial tips, and more. See you over there. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.